God, today we come perplexed. We probably come to you every time we pray perplexed by something. If only we could come to you when everything seemed right with the world and with our lives and simply sit in your presence and give you glory. But most of the time we wait until we're perplexed. We're sorry, Lord. We're really sorry for that. We owe you better than that. Lord, today we wonder about a young mother of three young children suffering with the brain tumor, and we think, how could this be? And yet, Lord, you've witnessed 10,000 times 10,000 tragedies, and you have heard the pleas and the prayers of many who have suffered. And like Moses, you've spoken through Moses, you've said, this too shall pass. And so we try to remember. And this is a temporary time where our faithfulness and commitment to your leadership of our lives is essential for the peace that it gives us, not to mention the power that it gives us to overcome and to be sources of your grace and mercy and spirit. Lord, help us then, not so much to understand, but to accept you and to recognize that even when we don't understand you, you are still our sovereign God. Lord, as we see the world filled with violence and we see the hatred and we see the vitriol and listen to the voices of hate and dis disregard and disrespect for each other, we, we just ask, Lord, that you might make us peacemakers, that we could be blessed peacemakers in the midst of all this turmoil. Lord, help us to be first and foremost peacemakers in our own household and then in our workplaces and our community and our churches. And then help us avoid hateful behavior and ungodliness in our own lives so that we can be more of a light of your grace within us. Help us to honor and glorify you, whether we be on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whether we be in the backyard tempted to judge our neighbors or something, you know? Just help us, Lord, to be better than that, to be more like you. Help us not to be so quick to judge as to show mercy and grace and understanding, forgiveness. Finally, Lord, our words seem inadequate at times like this, and so it gives us great comfort as we voice the very words that came from your mouth as you spoke Jesus, Jesus' prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the kingdom. Amen. Now, would you join me as we read from the book of Hosea? When's the last time you read Hosea? We're going to read from chapter 11, starting at verse 1. That's on page 899 in your pew Bible. Hosea 11, 1 to 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to, a land, to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Uh, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Edma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So today's reading was chosen using the Revised Common Lectionary. Now the Revised Common Lectionary is a schedule of readings that was devised to help churches relate the whole sweeping narrative of the scriptures over a three-year period of, and, and all of this while you're in church on Sunday mornings. When you follow this schedule precisely, and perhaps some of you who have a Catholic background understand this because it's used frequently, it's used regularly in Catholic Church, you will hear uh, four readings every Sunday morning in church. And if you were to do that without missing a Sunday for three years, then you would have experienced the entire cycle and would have probably uh, heard most of the Bible. And so that, that's the whole idea. Uh, in our denomination, we have a lot of resources that are programmed to go along with the Revised Common Lectionary, but we're not required to use it. And I use it sometimes in the summer because it's just really convenient when you have you know, vacations and so forth. And so today was one of those days where I just said, all right, Lord, 
what's the RCL going to throw me? And you know, the RCL, when you play it that way, will always throw you a curveball. How do I preach this story from Hosea? Now, the book of Hosea is a love story. I don't know how familiar, familiar you are with it, but, but it, it, on the surface, appears to be a love story about a very righteous man who marries uh, a professional prostitute, and he suffers constantly because of her wayward behavior. But it's really a story about God's love for a people who behave like that, for people that he has selected and, and blessed to be special, and they have responded in the same way that uh, Hosea's wife responded. And by the way, you know what her name is? Gomer. Yeah. Now, it's tempting sometimes to think that this story is about people from a long, long time ago who are very different from us and perhaps even inferior to us, but they're really not that different. They're really not that different. In fact, if you believe, as I do, that God witnesses everything you do and say, that God is alert to and aware of your entire life, your thought, your deeds, your words, then you can agree that we still have a tendency to behave like a wayward spouse with our God, who has asked us to be entirely devoted to God. And that means that without external help, we're in deep trouble. But fortunately, God has given us external help. God has given us a way to repair that relationship despite our tendency to be wayward, wandering, and loose with our affections, shall we say. Now, I've been reading a book this last few weeks that has really been compelling. It's called uh, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom by Frank Viola. And this one is a potent book. This thing is powerful. It'll really hit you right between the eyes. And, and in the beginning of the book, he describes their, the, what he calls the three different gospels. The first two he considers false gospels. And and I, I would concur. I mentioned in uh, the service the last time I preached that, uh, you know, I felt from the day that I stepped into the pulpit many, many, many years ago that God was calling me to help the church revive and to, to remember who you are. Um, I even remember one of the first sermons I preached once I got that sense. I called it, don't forget to remember who you are. And I thought that was pretty witty. I'm sorry if you don't think so, but, you know. Because I don't like making sermon titles because they're usually dumb. But in that case, it was all about recognizing the fact that, that people go to church a lot. And the church is still a really popular thing for people to do. But to what extent they subject themselves to the reign and authority of Christ is a mystery until you start thinking about it. Viola says that there are those who uphold a certain gospel, and I wanna quote him so I get this right, where their relationship to Jesus is understood to be an allegiance to external rule keeping. 
These people may not realize it, but they are in bondage to religious duty and obligation. And he says the second gospel that is also a false gospel is that there are those whose relationship to Jesus is understood to be a supplement to their already busy lives. Believing in Jesus makes them feel a little happier and helps them deal with sad days, but Jesus isn't really central in their lives. These people may not realize it, but they are in bondage to their own desires. And then he describes the third one. Those whose relationship to Jesus Christ is not motivated by guilt, condemnation, shame, religious duty, the fear of hell, or the hope of heaven. Rather, it is motivated by a compelling sight of the glorious person of Christ and the irresistible power of his kingdom. Well, of those three, which would you say is the best approach to our Savior? See, when you read about God's intense love in this passage from Hosea that we just heard, you begin to realize that there's nothing those people did that caused God to feel that love for them. In fact, they were quite unlovable at times. I mean, honestly, ask yourself a question that may be difficult to contemplate for some of us, but if you had an unfaithful spouse or an unfaithful uh, relationship that was very serious and committed and then it turned into infidelity, how would you feel towards the person? And to what extent would you hold a grudge and be unforgiving? What would your response be? Would you sever all ties with that person? However, God says, despite your infidelity, I'm not going to give up on you. I am going to let, I'm going to let you suffer the consequences of your decisions because choices have consequences. But he won't give up. Even as we read in the passage just now, he says, I'm going to let you suffer the consequences, but I can't abandon you. I can't turn my back on you. Well, why? Well, because God so loved the world. That's why. He can't stop. We can't know why. We can't know what's driving God except that God is love. And that God's love is so compelling that if we'll even repent a little bit, if we'll, if we'll even show the slightest inclination toward God, we will begin to feel his love trickle in. It's absolutely remarkable. And if you've never read the book of Hosea, it's a short read. Go ahead and read through it. And as you do, just remember Pastor Dan said, this is a love story about God and God's people, which includes you now. Because otherwise you'll think this is just really bizarre as you read it. See, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's not talking about a place. It's not talking about a land. It's, it, Israel is not the kingdom of God, and, and, and the earth is not a place that we would call the kingdom of God. In fact, in the Bible, kingdom reign is always a reference to the authority of the person in charge. It's always a way of saying, the, the one to whom you owe all of your allegiance. This is what got the early Christians in so much trouble with the emperor. 
of Rome, for example, because they had committed themselves entirely to the reign of Christ. And what that meant in their minds and what it meant to the Romans that led them to persecute and execute the Christians was very simple for, for them to understand, but maybe we don't see it that way anymore because we live in a totally different society. But what they were saying without hesitation was, Christ is the ruler of my life. Not Caesar, not presidents, not, not political parties, not uh, church affiliations, not denominations, not, not anything that is temporal. He may not have established a kingdom place on earth, but he has established a kingdom on earth, and his reign is witnessed through all of those who subject themselves to Christ's authority. And that's what we're meant to understand. We're meant to understand that the fidelity that God expects when you read Hosea is that kind of fidelity. It's an absolute commitment to the authority of Christ over your life and not other things and other people and other ideologies. This is why Frank Viola's book is called Insurgents because if you really stop and think about what we're proposing when you think of reign in those terms, it is an insurgence. It is, it is a group of people living in a society who have decided that they will not subjugate themselves to the standing authority, that they would rather have subjected themselves to a different authority. That's an insurgence. We hear about it in the news. It's the people who hurt our soldiers in places like Iraq. But in this sense, we are a body of insurgents living in the world, but we're no longer of the world. So Viola goes on to say that these false gospels lead to basically two camps. You have the legalism camp and you have the libertinism camp. And I'm gonna tell you about this because I want you to think about it. And this one, this one will be a little painful to process. It certainly got my juices flowing. The legalist camp is the one that, that wants to quantify everything, you know, the rule follower, the, the, the people who say, just give me the recipe and I'll follow it. And then I can count on getting the results. Now, some of us like that, you know, um, my wife is a brilliant cook, brilliant chef, really. She can just look at ingredients and see things happening before they happen. But me, I got to read the recipe and do what it says. And I'm so sure that if I don't follow the recipe, I will create some sort of tasteless disaster that I follow the recipe exactly as it's written. And then people go, wow, that's really delicious. Well, because for all intents and purposes, one of you great chefs out there made it. I didn't. I just followed your instructions on making it. Well, that's great for recipes, especially for the food ignorant like me. But it's not a great way to follow Christ, is it? There's no recipe or formula for following Christ. There's no recipe or formula. Remember how the man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? He's looking for a formula. Jesus being at odds with the religious authorities of his time 
had everything to do with the fact that they had formulated the whole religion into a series of rules to follow and a legalistic pattern to live by. And they then had given themselves authority within those rules to condemn people that they didn't think were holy and to accept people that they thought followed the rules and conformed nicely. It is a human invention. Legalism is a human problem. But libertinism is the other side of that coin, and that is a basic definition. The basic definition of libertinism is anything goes. Jesus has given me salvation from my sin. He's saved me by his grace from all that would have put me in a place of condemnation before God. Therefore, I can go do whatever I want now. Now, at the risk of offending some, as a guy who grew up in the Catholic Church, like many of you, I used to marvel in my previous career, especially at how uh, the guy who owned the company that I worked for went to my church and practiced the sacraments and then went back to work on Monday morning and said things like, you know, if they're too dumb to know they're being cheated, then, you know, that's more profit for me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, and uh, God rest his soul, because he's gone now, but, but that kind of thing really bothered me. It's like, okay, wait, 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 wait. You, you're saying that because you've practiced the sacraments, you've received the sacrament, and you've confessed your sins, and I'm wondering what in the world you confess, that then you can live as a heathen the rest of the week in some way. Now, a legalist would say, well, that's just gonna land you right back in hell, but actually, Neither point of view is correct, is it? When you live as though God expects nothing in particular from you except that you're happy, then you're subjecting Christ's authority to your authority over yourself. And if you live as though you have a bunch of rules to follow and therefore you win the approval of other rule followers, and you look righteous in the eyes of those who value the same standards of righteousness that you do, you're still subjecting Christ to your authority over yourself. And this love story from Hosea is a reminder to us that God wants a lot more than that from us. That God doesn't want a almost Christian. God wants an altogether Christian, a person who is completely devoted to Christ as the leader of their lives. When we call him Savior and Lord, that's what we mean. He saves us, and then we subject ourselves to his authority over our lives. It's a difficult message to hear, but that's the true gospel. The true gospel is, is that Christ defeated sin, which separated us from God, and then through that victory over sin and death, he invited us into God's household, which basically means that we're in God's kingdom because of Christ, and the only rule is, is that we subject ourselves to Christ's authority over our lives. And so you might be asking, well, what do I do then to make sure I'm living with Christ's authority over my life? Well. Start with easy things. 
Look at the decisions you make today and to what extent they serve you exclusively and to what extent do they serve Christ. Does this mean you never do anything for yourself? I can't answer that for you. I don't think that I live that way very well, if that's the case. But I certainly get a strong sense at times when I am really not in harmony with Christ's will for my life. I get a strong sense at times when my thoughts and my deeds and my words would not be pleasing for the Lord to hear. So let's start there. And if you've never really experienced this gift of this, this reign of Christ gospel, then you can do that today. And, and while we're not the kind of church that has elaborate altar calls and that sort of thing, it just so happens that on this Communion Sunday, there's a way that you can respond that will be very personal, but will also be an opportunity for you to say, Lord, I'm sorry that I've been a little too legalistic or I've been a little too uh, libertine in my approach to you. I want you to have greater authority over my life and if you'll be patient with me, I'll take baby steps. I can't expect to be as holy as Mother Teresa or one of those guys in the Bible, but you know, I got news for you. We were talking about this at the men's gathering yesterday. There's a lot of unholy characters in the Bible. They just love the Lord and pursue the God, the God of their fathers with all their heart, mind, and soul. And despite their ugliness, God honors their commitment to God. And a life of commitment to Christ, a total commitment to Christ's reign, will bear fruit even as some of the dumb things we do in disobedience to Christ will lead to other kinds of fruit. So if you wanna to respond to that, either with some sort of renewal or with a first time profession of faith, you can just come to the Lord's table. He set the table for you. And the table that he sets is a table of grace and forgiveness. We're told that uh, in the tradition of Jesus's day on earth, when people broke bread together, it was a sign of peace. You didn't eat with your enemies. And so he invites you to his table to eat as his friend, as a forgiven, trusted friend. And I forgot to light the candles. We're told that this is a reminder of the... Uh, Passover sacrifice, you know, that, that Christ said when his blood was shed for you, it was like that lamb of the Passover sacrifice, which was an indication that though you deserve the punishment, the punishment was going to pass over you. And so Christ wanted us to understand at that sacred meal that he shared with the apostles on the night before he died, that this was to remind us that our sins had been forgiven, that our Passover had come through Christ. And unlike the tradition before, it doesn't get repeated over and over again for our sake. It gets repeated as a celebration. And so this is a celebration of God's grace. And that's what we're going to do today.